Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Frank Bongiorno is Professor of History at the Australian National University and author of the award-winning book, The Sex Lives of Australians. He has written for The Monthly, The Australian and Inside Story. Today, I'm talking to Frank Bongiorno about his new book, Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia. Frank Bongiorno, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. It's lovely to be here, Greg. Dreamers and Schemers is a phenomenal achievement, so comprehensive in detail, but it doesn't have the flavour of a textbook. And my opening question is about your title, Dreamers and Schemers. Does our political history suggest we are more one than the other? Yes, I wish I could claim um, responsibility for the title, Greg, but one of my students, one of our um, PhD students here, Josh Black, came up with that one, and it is a good title. One more than the other, I think, is a really good question. I mean, there's been this idea that Australia has uh, a very utilitarian political system, by which people mean there's a strong emphasis on the practical, on delivery, if you like, rather than on the sort of more utopian, dreamy type aspects. And I used to think that um, we were a little bit more dreamy um, than schemy, for want of a better word. The pandemic in particular of the last couple of years has, has sort of convinced me that, you know, I think there is this very practical dimension where people are less inclined to talk about abstract rights and they're, they're more inclined to really just expect their governments to look after them. And so in a lot of ways, yeah, I think that we, we've had our dreamers and, in fact, um, you really need them in a, in a lot of ways, um, the visionaries, uh, if you're going to have change. And I think in critical periods in Australian history, those dreamers have come into their own and, and have been very important in bringing about change. But um, I also think that there is a, a more practical dimension to the politics that seems to me a very dominant one. Let's get to the, well, let's call it the popular foundation of Australian politics and Australian life in general, the land of the fair go. So it's something that's a popular phrase that's adopted by politicians in their addresses to the nation. Can we trace the foundation of that belief, myth or, or reality, if you like, back through our political history? And does the history of access to the political system and to decision-making support that fair go premise? Oh, some have always had a fair go than others, Greg, and I think the book shows that, that you know, the system has worked much better for some than it has for others at, at you know, different periods. Um, it's evolved, of course, and, and probably evolved in a more inclusive direction, taking a broad sort of sweep. Um, but that said, I, I think the, the, the fair go system, and, and it's been called, you know, the fair go system, can probably be traced to the very earliest years of colonial settlement, you know, going right back to convict era. I mean, one of the, the, the primary functions, perhaps the primary function of the governor in the very earliest period was to ensure that in the end no one starved, that people were, were were ultimately looked after. And I'm talking here primarily about settlers. Indigenous people have always had a, a much more ambiguous relationship, I think, to that notion of a fair go. And we can think of all sorts of ways in which it just simply hasn't applied to them over the course of the settler history of Australia. But, you know, if you go back to the very early years of the colony, there was an institution called the Commissariat. It was effectively the supply store and 
the whole function of that was to ensure that the basic minimum was achieved, that, that even the lowliest convict, they wouldn't starve. And I think that basic concept, as I suggest in the book, has been a very uh, dominant one through an, uh, you know, Australian history. And we can see it in later iterations like the welfare state and social security and the minimum wage and a whole range of institutions that have extended it in, in different kinds of ways. Let's go back to the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean before white settlement. And that's one of the great virtues of this book. It starts with Indigenous politics, which is something that I guess a lot of people wouldn't recognise. What form did politics take for First Nations people? Yeah, so First Nations people had their own assemblies, their own decision-making processes, uh, their own laws. Um, a key area was the whole issue of the regulation of marriage and sexuality because of its connections, of course, to access to country. And so as far as we can tell, that seems to have been quite central to Indigenous political processes. And what I was struck by, Greg, is that, you know, you go back and look at early explorer accounts and you know, anthropologists and others, and as late as the 1950s, you know, you have this phrase of people without politics, as if there's something kind of missing, um, that they didn't have government, um, that they didn't have chiefs or kings or queens, you know, the kinds of institutions that would have made them kind of legible to, to, to the newcomers. When you go back and look, you can see quite vivid descriptions of decision-making processes. So there's a kind of almost a cognitive dissonance there, I think, between white observers who say, you know, there was no government, there's no politics, and then what they actually describe, which you know makes it fairly plain that, that Indigenous people did have politics according to any reasonable definition. And those very observations are quite interesting. And there's one that you quote in your book by George Taplin, a missionary. I cannot give the natives credit for much order in their method of conducting business. There was a tremendous amount of talk. Sometimes one would speak, then half a dozen would all speak together in an excited and vociferous manner. Then some friend would interject an exclamation. I afterwards heard that the tendy broke up without any decision being arrived at. Now, that sounds very familiar. It sounds exactly like Parliament question time. It, it does. In fact, more orderly, I would have thought, and probably with the results than a lot of uh, parliamentary questions are. Um, absolutely. And that, that sort of underlines the point I'm, I'm making, that you get that kind of vivid description of institutions that, that were clearly um, involved in, in deliberation and discussion and decision-making. Um, and, and yet, you know, a, a, alongside that, a kind of denial of the existence of a politics. And I think that's a really good um, example. And, and there are others. I mean, that's that's one of, of, of many that, that you could point to. Let's uh, move into White Settlement and Lachlan Macquarie, the fifth governor of New South Wales. You describe him as the last of the classically autocratic governors and regarded it as more enlightened and progressive than some previous governors, perhaps. Now, the number of parks, streets, suburbs and institutions that bear his name suggest that he has been held in high regard. But is that regard justified? Was he a dreamer or a schemer? Oh, a bit of both, yeah. There's, a, a, I guess, the traditional way of thinking of Macquarie is as, you know, kind of father of Australia. Um, he was governor for what about over a decade, what about 12 years, I think, 11 or 12 years, um, a, a long period. And it was obviously a period where I guess a sense of the permanency, a sense of, of Australia as a kind of a great asset to the empire really took off. You know, a lot of public building in Sydney and and uh, the foundation of various institutions and 
you know, he's kind of been presented as a, a rather benevolent father figure. Um, but, you know, this is a good example of the ways in which historical trends change and new interpretations can come from the margins. And in, in this case, we're, we're increasingly aware of a quarry's role as a kind of military commander, actually, in terms of warfare with Indigenous people on the frontiers. I mean, he was also the first of the army men. All the earlier ones had been naval figures. And it's almost certainly significant that he is an army man because he is effectively a kind of a general, if you like, who is fighting a war against Indigenous resistance. And that interpretation of Macquarie has become much more prominent in, in recent years. I want to throw a few names at you and let me know if you think they're dreamers or schemers. William Wentworth. Well, Wentworth was definitely both a great mixture of dreamer and schemer, probably more schemer than dreamer, but he, he certainly... Um, like Macquarie, actually, I mean, had a, a great vision of the colony as a, a free colony, as a, as a, as a place uh, for enterprise as well as for self-government. And, you know, Wentworth was really, um, I guess, the most famous Australian of the 19th century, a native-born man who was the, the son of a convict woman um, and a near-convict father, um, a father who was a surgeon, uh, became very rich, but it had effectively been a highwayman, a kind of robber in, in Britain, but managed to avoid actually prosecution basically by going into exile in Australia. So Wentworth had ambiguous social origins. He wasn't accepted by the establishment. It becomes very much the basis for his form of politics. He comes to be seen as leader of the emancipist faction in New South Wales. That is, you know, those who had been ex-convicts or were outside the kind of charmed circle. And so, yeah, a, mi a mixture of both. But, yeah, he becomes, you know, I think probably the richest, certainly one of the richest landowners in New South Wales. You don't do that if you're not a pretty skillful schemer. And, and of course, you know, a leading politician right through the 1830s and into the 1840s, by which time he really aligns himself with his old opponents and, and becomes very much a defender of property. So, um, yeah, very um, complex career, um, but a very important one for understanding the political development of 19th century Australia. Now, George Arthur, I'm not sure whether dreamer or schemer applies, perhaps something um, less flattering, I suppose. Yes, I mean, an, an austere figure, uh, evangelical in his religion, uh, authoritarian like Macquarie, although I think on the whole less fondly recalled in the literature. I mean, his association with the Black War in Tasmania, I think, was secured much earlier. I think there's been a much greater consciousness for much longer of Arthur's role in um, frontier violence and frontier warfare in, in Tasmania or what was then Van Diemen's Land. He was certainly a schemer in the sense that he managed to enrich himself. I mean, he had a quite different definition or sense of what was corrupt and what wasn't in the 19th century. And it wasn't unusual for a governor to use his power to um, you know, acquire property in ways that would be utterly reprehensible today. And Arthur was very good at that. Uh, but he was a, also a very effective administrator, um, he he uh, was a scourge of the emerging newspaper editors in, in uh, Van Diemen's land. So a number of, of them spent time in, in prison because he didn't appreciate dissent. He didn't appreciate the crit criticism that came from them. So a fairly stern, austere figure, um, uh, but, you know, a, a longstanding governor and a, a quite skilled administrator. Um, there's no doubt about his capacity for, for leadership. Richard Burke. Yeah, look, Bert remains one of the most significant for us today. Um, when we get married, when we go to a independent school um, or we send our kids to a, a religious school that's getting funding, 
we're still living in the legacy of Burke because it was really um, Burke who essentially ensured that Australia wouldn't have an established religion, that that Australia would be a, a kind of secular state in the way that we understand it today, where no particular denomination has a privileged place. And the way we fund our schools today owes something to, to that model that he established in the 1830s. And he was also critical, actually, again, you know, thinking about ambiguous legacies in the way that Aboriginal people were dispossessed because, you know, he was uh, he overturned the Batman Treaty, for instance, in, in Melbourne in the mid-1830s, basically insisting that the land belonged to the Crown. And, of course, that became a great instrument for um, the dispossession of Aboriginal people until the 1990s when, of course, the same principle came, became the basis for the recognition of native title. But Burke... Uh, is a very important figure, really, because of the ways in which a lot of the decisions, key decisions of that period, have to some extent lasted down to the present day. So a very, very important figure. So we've talked about some of the big names of Australian politics, but Australia is also populated by small people having a voice. They're not always names we easily recall. And now I'm here I'm going to just put forward the name Charles Jardine Don, a working-class man, a handloom weaver by trade, and what is known as a stump orator. Is he a radical or a trailblazer? Why does he get a mention in this history? Yes, he was certainly a radical of the 1850s, of the gold rush era. Um, And he's often regarded as the the first genuinely sort of working class figure um, or trade union associated figure to be elected to an Australian parliament. So we can perhaps think of him as almost like a proto-Labour kind of candidate, although there was no Labour Party, of course, in the late 1850s. He was elected to um, a seat of Collingwood, um, famous working class industrial Melbourne suburb still, Um, perhaps less working class today than it was back then. But um, Don was um, an immigrant, uh, as you say, a a stonemason. He also had um, various sort of popular um, ideas and beliefs of the day. Um, He was a phrenologist who believed you could read character through the the bumps on one's head. He was a, a Swedenborgian, which was a kind of spiritual, um, well, spiritualism, a, an unorthodox religious belief of the day. And he was elected to to Parliament, um, but it wasn't a great success, really. And the, the key problem there was that parliamentarians weren't paid in the 1850s. They effectively were very vulnerable to the bribery, um, to effectively coming under the sway of one interest or another. And that's really what happened Charles Dardine Don, that he, he came under the sway, I think, of both uh, landowners and publicans, hotel owners. And, and um, it wasn't a particularly successful experiment, but it did prefigure the later Labor Party experiments of the 1890s and beyond. I want to turn to William Cooper. Cooper was very well known for having petitioned King George VI for parliamentary representation for Indigenous people. Uh, but as I understand it, the Lions Conservative UAP, that's a, a very familiar <laughs> acronym or close to familiar. Um, the, the Lions declined to submit that petition. And, and it seems that 100 years later that um, Cooper's dream of representation hasn't been fully realised. William Cooper, clearly a dreamer, not enough of a schemer. Yeah, I mean, the, the capacity for an Indigenous activist, an Aboriginal activist in the 1930s to scheme was was slight. I mean, they're, they're very marginalised. Um, Cooper is, I think, now justly better known than he, he was even a generation ago. We have a federal electorate named after him, um, which I think is testament to his growing profile in our kind of collective memory. 
an activist really from the late 19th century right through to um, the end of the 1930s, uh, beginning of the 1940s, if I remember rightly. And yeah, the central demand of his petition to the king, which, um, as you say, wasn't wasn't forwarded, was for really an Aboriginal voice in Parliament, so a very modern-sounding demand. What he wanted was um, a special representative, an Aboriginal representative in the federal parliament, or potentially, he said, a white person who was capable of thinking black, um, that is, who, who was in touch with the needs and aspirations of Aboriginal people. So it was very much political demand. It was based on the special representation that Maori had in the New Zealand parliament and had had since, what, the 1860s. So he was working from a model. Um, and yes, it has a very contemporary resonance because he was effectively asking for a voice for parliament. He what didn't care whether the individual concerned had a vote in parliament. It wasn't of any interest to him um, and, and those who he worked with. What they wanted was a voice. We can't have this discussion without talking about Gough Whitlam, and particularly when we're referring to dreamers and schemers. Has the status of folk hero these days, I guess, um, for some people and not for others. Had Gough Whitlam been more of a schemer, which apparently he doesn't seem to have been, how different might Australia look today? Yeah, um, he was certainly capable of of scheming. Um, I mean, one of Whitlam's great achievements was getting there in the first place. Um, Labor looked unelectable when he became leader in 19, early 1967. He changed all that over the, the, the years that followed, the five or so years, and he turned it into a formidable force. Um, and that required a fair bit of scheming. Um, he had to scheme against a lot of internal opponents within the Labor Party all, all the way through that period, certainly through to about 1971. He was also very much a dreamer. I mean, there's no doubt we, we remember Wickham, um, as you say, sometimes now as a folk hero, but certainly as a visionary. I mean, he seemed to embody a lot of the dreams and ideals of the, the, the later 1960s and the 1970s. And I guess, you know, younger people becoming mobilised and engaged with politics during during that period. Yes, if he'd been a bit more of a schemer on the 11th of November 1975 and perhaps in the lead up to that, may well have done better that day even. Um, it was such a, a risky strategy what both Kerr and Fraser were undertaking. So much could have gone wrong. And I think if certainly if Whitlam had been uh, a little more able to use the fact that he had a lower house majority sitting back in, in the House of Representatives at Parliament House um, and the capacity to obstruct um, a budget himself in the Senate for certainly to hold it up, it could have been a, a much more difficult situation for those who got rid of him on that day. So, yes, I mean, he didn't show a great deal of skill in scheming on the day he was actually dismissed. I mean, famously, after he was handed his letter of dismissal by Sir John Curry, he went off to the lodge to have a steak lunch. Now, you know, some would say that probably a more instinctive schemer might have headed straight back to Parliament House to deal with the fallout of what had happened. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. And the rest is history, I guess. I want to jump forward into the 21st century, very early 21st century, and I really like the title of the chapter that uh, we're going to talk about, The Glimmer of Twilight, and here we're going to talk about one of the landmarks in our recent political history, and they're the ones involving the Norwegian tanker, the NV Tampa, in 2001. Now, the treatment of refugees remains to this day one of the great dividing issues confronting this nation. Was Tampa a defining moment for Australian immigration policy or simply history repeating? Yeah, well, a defining moment 
for Australian politics, perhaps. Um, it, it perhaps signalled even something larger than, than than simply a change in immigration or attitudes to immigration. Look, it was, Tampa is incomprehensible, I think, without a, a much longer sense of Australian political history. And I talk, you know, about the, the panics, I guess, around boat arrivals going right back into the 19th century. They were there in the 1850s. I talk about an example from 1888 involving Chinese immigrants. Um, one can think of 20th century examples, the arrival of Maltese immigrants even during the First World War was capable of, of galvanising um, politics. So, look, it, you know, that, that longer history of fear of being swamped by, by Asians, to use our know, Pauline Hanson term, it's, it's, it's there right from the 1850s. And I think Pamper is, needs to be seen in, in, in that, sort of, that sort of context. In terms of its effects, um, yeah, I, I think it, it signalled the end of a much more optimistic, expansive period in the country's political history, of which immigration policy was very much a part of that. I mean, Australia's post-war, post-World War II immigration policy was an expression initially, I think, of a defensiveness. It was about ensuring that Australia wouldn't be invaded again. You know, it was about fear of Japan still in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. But then during the 50s and 60s, that immigration program became something else. It was about nation building. It expressed a more optimistic sense, I think, of the nation's possibilities. And I'd argue, I think, that Tampa brought an end to that particular phase in Australian political history. I think we became a more, a more fearful place, perhaps a more inward-looking people in some ways. Um, politicians understood that they needed to tread very carefully around matters of immigration, and particularly matters of, of refugees. Australians were comfortable on the whole with Asian immigration in the 21st century. Um, it happened on a large scale. Um, but they were increasingly conscious, I think, of the importance of controlling those flows of ensuring that they benefited, that the society benefited through the capital and skills of migrants. I think that was a much more calculating approach to immigration and perhaps a less generous one than what we'd seen in the 1950s and 1960s when, of course, it was about nation building too. But there was, a, I think, a wider sense of the ways, the different ways in which diverse people could contribute to the nation back then, whereas I think we, we get a, a much more restricted sense of nation building yeah. going on in the early 21st century. Was Paul Keating's statement that uh, we live in Asia, another defining moment, admittance that we were part of Asia. Yeah, and and he, he certainly wasn't the first prime minister to go down that path. I mean, we can find all sorts of earlier efforts. You know, even going back to a figure like Alfred Deakin to 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 think about Australia as part of the Asian region. Um, that wasn't an entirely new idea, but but certainly Keating gave it um, a great push. I think in many ways, so did Wickham. I mean, the, the great change that occurred, though, I think, from the 1980s onwards, is that the, the if you like, the composition of the country's population shifted. Um, you know, it's all very well to talk about the end of the white Australia policy, to talk about engaging with Asia as politicians of the 60s and early 70s, such as Whitlam did. But when, you know, you have Asian migrants arriving in large numbers and, and really changing the country on the ground, becoming a factor in politics, um, making an appearance in our parliaments. Um, and, and, and now, you know, that, that was, I think, very evident after the 2022 federal election that we have a parliament that's simply much more diverse than those we've been accustomed to in the past. 
I think that's transformative in a different kind of way. And that was certainly happening by the time Keating was talking about Asian engagement. Despite all the advances we've made and the changes that have happened to our society and even to the political system and our representation in it, it's interesting that the two major political parties have become increasingly similar in recent years to the point that in many policy areas, uh, immigration and refugee policy, economics, environmental and climate policy, it's sometimes hard to tell the two apart, at least on a policy level, although the rhetoric might differ. Is this a new phenomenon? Political scientists back in the 1950s talked about, they called it convergence. Um, and this was the idea that political parties were coming to re resemble one another much more. I think you could argue too that consensus emerged even earlier in the early 20th century Australia around a series of policies that was, you know, were, were largely accepted by all of the, the political groupings. So the idea of parties converging is not new. You see a compulsory voting system in Australia um, promotes this kind of convergence. That is, if you have to appeal to a large middle ground of perhaps not terribly engaged um, or, you know, sort of excited or excitable voters, well, you, you, the parties, the major parties are going to pitch an appeal that's going to look rather similar because they're appealing to this sort of large cohort of people who have to vote, who don't have to be persuaded to actually come out and vote. Um, and and that, that arguably gives a kind of consensual and even um, perhaps moderate feel Australian politics that, you know, we obviously haven't seen in the case of the United States in, in the recent past and, and perhaps even the United Kingdom. So, um, yeah, there's the sense of, of there being a lot of shared ground between major parties, I think, is substantial. It's also surely an aspect of a relatively successful country. That is one that, you know, has a, a high standard of living, that rates well on, on human development index. Um, it, it's striking that the, the, the divisions and differences have tended to appear around those issues that are incredibly difficult for, for Australia to confront. And climate change is one of those. And we've surely seen, I think, quite significant differences between the major parties on an issue like that. And I think around Indigenous issues too, um, it's been rare, I think. We have occasionally had consensus um, in in the, the the sort of modern period, I mean, there was a, a kind of consensus in in you know the more distant past, which was basically to marginalise indigenous people. There are no ready answers or solutions to the major problems um, in, in that particular field of policy. So, um, you know, I think around some issues, probably around economic policy, you do get a lot of agreement and convergence. Perhaps around some issues of social policy, um, perhaps less so. My final question, or I suppose it's more than one question, is about public trust. So public trust in politicians and the political sphere is at a fairly low ebb. I guess that leads me to the other question, which is, should we take faith or have confidence in the Australian democratic system when it's under threat uh, in the sense that we have lost trust in political leaders and the system itself? Yeah, it's a really good question, Greg. I mean, we've measured trust reasonably systematically since the 1980s. And it is reasonably clear that in the last oh, 15 years or so, there has been a broad decline in trust. Um, the surveys taken during the, the, the early period of the pandemic showed a recovery in levels of trust in pol politics and politicians. But it's interesting, as soon as we got into 2021, um, that that um, level of trust uh, declined again. So it seems to have been a temporary phenomenon associated with turning to government during the pandemic. 
in terms of whether this is justifiable, look, um, broadly speaking, my book, I think, gives a reasonably positive account of the capacity of the system to respond to various demands and challenges. I mean, I talk about different periods where, you know, the, the political system often seemed as though it was in the quicksand, as if it, it wasn't able to respond to the particular challenges being offered by new cohorts of people coming into the country or becoming politically active, becoming politically demanding, economies that seemed to be going um, downhill and, and, and needed some sort of um, reforming or reinvigoration. And I think we've had periods in the 1850s and then the 1890s, the 1930s and 40s, and then perhaps again the 70s and 80s, where there was a real sense of crisis or of being at the crossroads. And it's interesting that at each of those points, the political system was more or less able to respond. And I think that that, that suggests there is a kind of um, embedded flexibility in the system that I think does come from the fact that it is a relatively democratic system. It doesn't work equally for all people, but it has shown itself to be a very resilient system. I mean, you, you look at the depression of the 1930s, this was a system under a lot of pressure, you know, probably a quarter of the population unemployed, Political violence was being deployed to some extent by extreme groups. And yet the political system did hold up. And I think we've seen that at various points along the way. Um, even in 1975, with the dismissal of the Whitlam government, uh, you know, again, a real prospect of civil violence. And there was some low-level violence. But again, the system did recover. Um, it, it did, if, if you like, re recover a kind of equilibrium. And Labor, of course, was in government within just a few years in, in 1983. Indeed, it turned out to be the longest serving Labor government in the country's national political history. So, you know, I, 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 broadly speaking, I am more optimistic, I think, about the capacity of the system to respond. I think, as I said earlier, there are some really difficult issues, though, um, climate change being among those, um, where so far, um, it's not a great report card. And I think that that will be and will continue to be a major challenge just because of the, the, the economy's reliance on fossil fuels for its own energy. And of course, also as an export industry. So I think that's that's going to be um, a difficult issue and remain a difficult issue for some time. Frank Bongiorno, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. It's been a pleasure, Greg. Thanks. I've been talking to Frank Bongiorno about his new book, Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia. It's published by La Trobe University Press, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.